Welcome to the rooftop. The title of this episode is Reclamation, My Journey of Digital Disentanglement. <laughs> I'm coming at you from Bluefields Bay Villas in Westmoreland Parish in Jamaica, and I am on day eight with my lovely bride, Monty, uh, for our 28th wedding anniversary. Our wedding anniversary is actually on Veterans Day, November 11th, of course. No, we, we didn't plan that, but it did work out that way. And we have been coming to this little, it's a fishing village, but it's a, it's a set of villas that we've been coming to for 14 years now. 14 straight years that we come here and um, get off grid, right? And and I will tell you, it's a very special, sacred place to me. A lot of folks don't know this, but the when we were doing village stability operations in Afghanistan, and I, I wrote a book about it called Game Changers, and even the methodology for the actual program I wrote down here in Jamaica. I was still on active duty. And I worked on the methodology right here in 2010. Um, my play, Last Out, my book, Mission America, Leading Through Chaos, um, Operation Pineapple Express, all of them written here. My TED Talks were written here. When I tell you this place is sacred to Monty and me, I mean it. It's where I come to unplug and create and just reconnect with my wife because we run really, really hard, as a lot of you know, with our for-profit and non-profit. And so being able to come here, it's a, it's a salvation of sorts. It allows us to just get off grid and we're in each other's presence. There's pool time. There's ocean time. You might even be able to hear the waves. I don't know. Wes may be able to work his magic on the engineering front, but I'm, you know, let me paint the picture for you. I'm sitting in a bohio right now. My wife, Monty, is stretched out in a hammock, smiling over at me, as she always does. I'm looking out at the Caribbean Ocean. It is literally um, 20 feet from the little uh, covered area we're sitting in. And there's not a soul to be seen. It is literally our own private place in paradise. And we love it here. And, again, it's it's a sacred place as well because it's where I come to, to frankly, create. And um, it's where a lot has happened for me in the last – I told you we've been here eight days. A lot has happened for me in the last seven days in terms of this uh, this topic of reclamation. Now, let me just give you the – the rigid definition of, dec of of reclamation, and then I'm going to get into it with you, right, and, and so that you kind of understand what's going on. And if you hear me pausing here, it's because I'm taking a long draw on my awesome bulletproof coffee that my bride made me. Um, but reclamation in the definition that I found in the dictionary is the process of claiming something back or reasserting a right. As soon as I saw it, I'm like, yep, that's it. There's definitions of reclamation for land and things like that. But that word just kept coming into my mind as I've experienced what I've experienced in the last seven days. And so I want to talk to you today in this episode about my journey of disentangling from the digital world. And I believe it's, it's, it's essential to have this conversation because I think it affects you too. I think it affects your family. I think it affects your kids. I certainly think it affects how you're leading in the world. But I'm going to start with my own experience and then we'll parlay that into yours as we talk about what this means to us. 
So we showed up in Jamaica about, as I'm recording this, it was about, I've been here about seven days, uh, late October. And we had been on the road uh, quite a bit. When we showed up in Jamaica, I'm going to be honest with you guys, and I think many of you sensed it when I did my podcast on the weary kind. You you sensed it. You reached out to me, and and you, you knew I was, I was in pretty bad shape. I was exhausted from the road. Monty and I have been on the road with well over 110 uh, platform presentations over the last year, plus the play uh, and a range of nonprofit efforts on top of that. I had gotten pretty dark, if I'm being candid, in the sense that the – and I'll tell you what pushed me over the top was, well, the two-year anniversary of the – Afghanistan abandonment and the fact that our government did literally nothing uh, two years later to even recognize that. And and that hit me harder than I thought. And then the, um, the Palestinian-Israeli war really um, rekindled a lot of feelings from the 9-11 arena that I had buried. Um, but I was in a pretty dark place. I was exhausted. I was living in my devices. I had even gotten into to some degree, uh, different volunteer groups that were trying to help uh, Americans uh, who were stuck and stranded in Israel and Gaza. Um, and my time, my available time, you know, uh, the, the wonderful consultant Alan Weiss talks about what your available time is when you measure wealth. Well, my time was measured not in hours, not in days, but in minutes of what time was available to me. It, it had gotten to the point where I would really have to think ahead on how I was going to go to the bathroom in between Zoom calls or phone calls or uh, in-progress reviews with the play. And I was operating fully on the agenda of others. Now, let me be clear about something here, and this is really important, and I, I, I hope that this resonates with some of you listening. I take full accountability and responsibility for that. That's not anyone's fault but mine. You know, one of the things that my wife and I have talked about since we've been here is that I am definitely Rex Man's son (laughs) in the sense that I make myself available to just about anybody who needs it if I feel like I can help them. That was the way I was raised. It was the way I operated in the military. And frankly, it's something I'm very proud of. You know, it's it's something that uh, it runs deep in me. It runs deep in my family is to make ourselves available as servant leaders to the people we serve. But when you expand that into the digital world, when you expand that into various social media platforms, media, and the thousands of veteran advocacy efforts that are out there alone, you're spread too thin. And, and I have to own that. But, but that's where I was when I showed up in Jamaica, uh, living on my devices, pretty dark place in rough shape. And Monty kept saying all the way down, hanging there, baby. We're almost to Jamaica. My buddy Eric calls it J-Time, and it's so true. It's uh, it's definitely something that I was I was looking forward to. And I'll tell you, as soon as we got here, we got in the vehicle that brought us over from Montego Bay, and we got to our little villa, and immediately I started to feel a little bit better. You know, I got on a pair of shorts and a T-shirt, and... Um, just looked out at the ocean and looked at my wife, and I immediately started to feel better. I could feel my toes starting to uncurl a little bit. I started to feel a bit more of myself, 
and I, I could feel some connection with the natural world. Whereas up until that point, I was in my devices. I was just head down in that represented reality that seemed to dominate every aspect of my life, that represented digital reality, whether it was a small screen, a big screen, it was a screen all the time. And now all of a sudden I was kind of looking out at the Caribbean, you know, listening to the waves make their little sound that maybe you can hear now. And I started to feel better. Um, but I, I, uh, they, I'm going to confess and I, and I'll, I'll share a picture with you guys in the show notes here. I have a whiteboard that, um, that I use when I come to Jamaica. I am uh, a member of whiteboard, uh, anonymous and, um, you know, I can't help myself. Uh, the, the staff here made me a whiteboard 14 years ago and they know now whenever I come, they bring this whiteboard and it sits by the pool. And while my bride suns her buns, I'm on the whiteboard working on whatever um, whatever idea or project is coming to mind. And, and believe me, I've got several that I'm working on right now that I'm excited to share with you in 24. But immediately, man, I started populating that whiteboard and – you know, it was. I think some of the the folks that brought it in the in the vehicle in the truck, they were kind of laughing and snickering watching me do that because you know it's got to look crazy, but it's what I do. And um, I started working on the whiteboard, and then I would sit down for a while and I would check emails and do a little work, and then I would get up and do some creative stuff, and it seemed to be working pretty good. And then Monty and I, we went to bed pretty early. We were tired, so we shut we shut up the doors, we laid down, and I remember getting up at around one o'clock to go pee. I'm 55. I get up at 1 o'clock to go pee. All right? So we'll just leave it there. Um, But I did that, and when I came back to the bed, I could feel my phone staring at me. Now, I know that at face value, that might sound crazy. But what's even crazier is that most of you right now are going, yeah, I've had that. My phone stares at me. I can feel it staring at me. I can feel it staring at me when I get up in the morning and I go to pee um, because I'm not 55 or whatever. But you can feel your phone staring at you. And I felt my phone staring at me. I had not checked it since I went to bed, for God's sake. I needed to check it. So I checked my phone. Monty was fast asleep. And I remember uh, opening up LinkedIn. I looked at it for a second and I said, shit. And Monty sat up in the bed. She said, what's wrong? You know, she immediately goes to something's happened to one of the boys or whatever. And I was like, no, there was a mass shooting. There was a mass shooting in Maine, and it may be a veteran, and he's on the run. And, you know, I started just spouting off all these things, and my mind was racing. It was off to the races of how, how can I contribute to solving this problem? And Monty just – I could feel her gaze on my back, and it wasn't quite lasers, but it was hot. And – I. She, I turned around, and she's like, seriously? Babe, what are you possibly going to do about that in Jamaica? Put your phone up and go to bed. And I just kind of stood there, stumbfounded, dumbfounded, with my phone in my hand, and, and almost as if I had been in a trance. And that's what I felt like. I felt like I had kind of like she had slapped me out of a trance. And so I'm standing there in my skivvy, staring at her with my phone in my hand, and um, – I laid it down. I plugged it back in. I laid it down, and I just took her advice, and I got back in the bed. And I was, you know, and she's like, baby, just try and get some sleep, okay? You you need to get some sleep. And, and, and I can feel the worry in her voice. She carries so much worry for me because she knows um, that I, I press the gas too much. And, you know, she's very protective of me, and I can feel that concern coming out here. So I, I, I was kind of mad at myself for having that outburst and just – 
all of it. So I laid down and eventually I went to sleep. So I get up the next morning and I don't know what time it was. I don't know. It's probably eight thirty, nine o'clock. And I got up, went to the bathroom because I'm 55, went to the bathroom. And um, you know what? I, I didn't feel my phone staring at me. <laughs> you know, I didn't. I didn't feel it staring at me. I, I I didn't even think about it. I walked back out. I got all my stuff, and I walked out. Monty and I have this thing that we do uh, here. No, no, it's we like to go outside. Yeah, you perverts. We, we like to go outside and open the door at the same time and just see the day, and it was amazing. It's just as it could, we could hear the waves. It was early enough that the sun was breaking on the Caribbean. I mean, gorgeous, and we just stood there, and I, we look at it, and it's kind of like you know presenting ourselves to the day and the day presenting itself to us, and it's just something that – when we're in the mountains and when we're in Jamaica, that happens. And I, as I looked out at it, we walked outside. We sat by the pool. We had our coffee. Uh, she had her uh, caffeine drink. And we're just sitting there. And she's like, where's your phone? And I, I, did, I, I don't know. I guess it's inside. And the craziest thing hit me, you guys. You know what? I said to myself, to myself, I'm not going to get my phone. I'm going to just see how long I can go without it. And I immediately, my blood pressure started to go up. Immediately, I felt this, you know, this tightness in your chest. I felt these heart palpitations. But I thought, that's kind of crazy, man. I'm going to just, I'm just going to see if I can do it. Now, I'm a recovering alcoholic, so, and I've also quit Copenhagen after dipping it for years. So I know that you never make big announcements um, publicly because you're going to fail at that shit. So I just said, I'm going to tell myself this. I'm not going to pick my phone up for a few minutes, and we'll see what happens. And a few minutes went by, and the next thing you know, it had been an hour. Monty and I have gotten in the pool. We've had breakfast. And you know what? I'm feeling pretty good, man. I go to the whiteboard. I'm doing some work there. I'm working on my project. But I'm not, I'm not, on, my, I'm not on my device. And that's when it hit me. After a couple of hours, I just said to myself, when is the last time? That I've never been, that I haven't been on a device. And what's the longest that I've ever gone? And and like the deeper part of me was saying, long ass time, bro. Probably since you retired from the military in 2013, if not before then. And I thought, damn, you know, that's crazy. And I and I admittedly do all this work on human connection. I do a lot of work on researching how the mechanized world that we live in is is in, is moving us away from our connection to the natural world. More on that in a bit. And I'm always talking about it, and I'm always talking about getting back to nature, but I'm the same I'm the same asshole that's got his phone in his left hand while he's saying that shit, right? So I thought, mm-mm, I'm going to unplug from it today, right? I'm going to unplug today. I'm not picking up my phone. Now, I still didn't tell Monty because I didn't know how it was going to go. I didn't know what was going to happen. And so I didn't say anything. But you know what? She noticed by noon. She's like, Where's your phone? You haven't picked up your phone. I mean, she's like, you can hear the tone in her voice. I'm like, I know. I haven't picked up my phone. And she goes, what are you doing? And I said, I don't think I'm going to touch it all day. And I just stared at her. And she stared back. And she was like, okay, that's awesome. And I didn't. I didn't touch the phone. All of a sudden, I felt empowered. And I I just left it alone. And I said, hey, I'm going to need you to help me, though. I don't want to see the screens. Can you turn them off? Can you put them in airplane mode? And so she's getting a kick out of this. So she grabs my iPad. She grabs my phone. She grabs my computer. And she puts them in airplane mode. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I could just feel, like, my heart dropping. 
But I thought, okay, I'm just going to move around. I did that. We did a little workout. And you know what? By the time the day had moved on, I was almost through the day, and I hadn't looked at my damn phone. And I was really feeling different. I was like, oh, my God, I might go all day without my phone. Now, think about the ridiculousness of that. Is that a word? It's a word now. Think about the ridiculousness of that. That that I am going through, and you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of when I went all day without a drink. Like, people who are not alcoholics, they don't do that shit when they go all day without a drink. They don't. They don't sit around and count the minutes or congratulate themselves for, like, you know, going to the lake or the pool without a drink. Only people who have a problem do that. And so that's when it was really starting to hit me by late afternoon. I'm thinking, holy crap. I'm literally clocking and tracking every moment without my phone and congratulating myself. I have a serious problem here. So went on into the evening. Uh, we watched a movie together and went to bed, turned in pretty early again without my phone. You know what? I didn't even plug that shit in. Didn't need to. Went to sleep, woke up the next morning, and this was the kicker, you guys. Now it had been a full period of darkness that I had, you know, gone without my phone, and I felt great. Got up, did a workout. I felt like I had reconnected, had reclaimed some part of me that had been buried for years. I couldn't put my finger on it, but the jonesing was gone. And so I just said to myself, I'm going to go another day. And before too long, my wife looked over at me at the breakfast table and she said, uh, you still don't have your phone. What? And I'm like, babe, I think I'm going to do like a serious detox. And she said, okay. And, you know, we were both excited about it. And she said, what are you thinking? I said, I think, I'm thinking 96 hours, <laughs> five days. And she was like, oh, my God. And I said, but I'm going to need your help. You know, I'm going to need you to screen phone calls. I'm going to need you to check text messages for me if they come in um, because we wanted to play music on Bluetooth. You know, we had some connection like that, but not the invasive uh, stuff that comes in from the, the Internet. And so we agreed. And basically that's what we did for, for 96 hours, which took us all the way up until uh, the weekend. And then I was like, well, babe, I'm going to go seven full days. I'm, I've stretched Five days together, I feel great. I feel back in my body. I feel reconnected with the natural world, this represented reality bullshit where I'm in my screen in what the world wants me or what, you know, what my left hemisphere wants me to see. I'm done with that. So I went two more days. I went seven days. I'm, I'm recording this right now on the eighth day of my detox, and um, I, I did reconnect with the world a little bit today. I'm going to talk to you about that. But... You know, I know that was the long way around of explaining to you a seven-day detox, but you guys, it was literally like quitting alcohol. It was like quitting tobacco. And, you know, here are a few observations that I had. Is when I first started, there was a bit of jonesing, as I described. I felt physical manifestations of anxiety, um, and I was asking myself, like, these really bullshit questions, like, well, what if the team calls? And I would say, well, you know, they they know we're off-grid. And I would say, okay, but what if I get an email from a potential host for Last Out? They'll wait because they they know this is a long process. Well, what if there's a keynote opportunity that comes in? We have a team for that, and there's already an out-of-office message. Well, okay, but what if mom and dad need me? Well, my wife, Monty, has her phone. 
Um, and my dad is the kind of tough-ass mountain man that stomped on a snake that he was trying to kill even after he fell and broke three ribs, right? So I think they'll be okay. And that was the kind of stuff I was having to do. But you know what actually happened? Again, I walked outside every morning. I connected with the natural world. My phone felt dead to me. It, it literally was more worthless than an iPod. Remember those damn things? Like, I had no use for it. And everything was more bright, more clear, more grounded. And I really did feel like I was having more of an embodied experience in everything that I was doing. Um, I sat in the sun. I don't even know how long, just looking out at the ocean, lost in a trance state, a healthy trance state, not that negative trance state of of of, of cortisol and 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 um, and adrenaline that you get when you're when you're looking at mass shootings and all the other bullshit in the world. I was taking full breaths. Like that was what was happening for me, and my creativity took a whole new level. I started to write and dig into metaphors and things that are so critical to the way the brain makes sense of the world in terms of writing and speaking that I hadn't done in years. Um, I took a nap. I read. You know, Monty continued to screen my calls and filter stuff that, hey, you might want to weigh in on this, and I would just tell her, let's do this. And, and again, by the end of the, of the seven days, uh, I was in a really, really good place, and I still am. And it was transformational for me. If I'm being honest, it was transformational. Uh, it may have saved my life in some ways in the sense that it allowed me to reclaim my life. It allowed me to reclaim, reassert my agency in the way that I navigate the world with the natural world, not this bullshit represented digital realm that I have come to immerse myself in. And, 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 and frankly... It allowed me to disentangle, right? What I didn't realize was how entangled I was in the digital world. And I think that is true for so many of us. You know, there is a, um, there's a, a, a video out, and I'll, I'll see if Wes can put the link in here. It's by the guys who did The Social Dilemma. Their names escape me. Um, but they did a talk on AI, and they talked about the dangers of artificial intelligence and what it could potentially mean to basically the end of our species. And when they talk about AI, they said, you know, we've lost the first round with AI, which was social media. Social media learned how to curate through the like button and the share button um, the things that we had to hold our attention Right, it became an attention economy, and it, 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 it what, but what it did was it tapped into the the primal elements of our brain by 2010, 11, 12. The architects of social media learned that um, if you, if humans will more likely share information that is negative and fear-based and anger-based about an outgroup. Oh, so now all of a sudden these platforms are not for keeping in touch with relatives and sharing pictures from your vacation. Yes, you can still do that. Now it is an in-group, out-group platform by which people compete for your economy by grouping you into tribes and factions. Holy shit. 
And I've been digging into this hard, and maybe that's why in my soul I felt like I needed to um, do this detox because there was something insidious, something entangling, sinister. Like literally, you know, I've talked about the snakes in my head when I left the military and I was trying to find my purpose in the, in, in the new world that I was in. And my buddy Dave Phillips, a Vietnam veteran, warned me about snakes in the head. I felt like there were snakes slithering through my whole body. I felt like there was this digital entanglement, uh, a matrix-type situation where I'm lying comatose in some, you know, uh, catacomb w- with tubes coming out of me, and, and everything that's happening in my life is a represented reality. And I know that seems extreme, but is it really? I mean, if you just close your eyes and allow yourself to immerse in that, isn't that where we are, right, this entangled state? And that's what I felt so deeply that I didn't even have words for it until I detoxed for seven fucking days, man. Seven days before I could even have a language or a grammar for this. And I've been digging into it hard. You know, I've been been reading why the last 10 years in America have been uniquely stupid in the Atlantic. Uh, I've been reading Ian McGilchrist, who's done seminal work uh, in The Master and His Emissary uh, and The Matter with Things. I mean, thousands and thousands of pages of this voluminous work where he points out how our asymmetric divided brains are actually causing a lot of these problems where we're imitating machines. I mean... When I tell you I'm serious about this shit, I'm serious about it. Why? Because I believe this ultimately leads to species extinction. This doesn't lead to lack of attention with, to our kids. This doesn't lead to loss of our own you know, dreams. This leads to species extinction. And, I, and, I've, and I've, I've followed, I've developed enough sidekicks now, people who I really have a lot of trust in, that are saying this. But the problem is most of them are either architects, engineers, or academics. And so their words aren't mainstreaming into those of us that are leading and operating in the trenches every day. But I'm worried about it. You know, I'm worried. And, and the dangers of entanglement are pressing. I think, they, I think we're on the clock, boys and girls. I think we're on the clock. I mean, you fucking explain it to me. I'm I'm a fairly intelligent guy. I've written books. I've written plays. I've performed plays. I've served as a special operator in combat. Yet I was so entangled with with this world, with this digital represented reality that I didn't even exercise my own agency, right? And, you know, if you watch The Social Dilemma, I mean, these engineers that literally created Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn, they don't even let their kids have a phone, man. Why? Why is that? Why did, the, the, why did one of the architects of the, of, the, of the retweet button say to a colleague, I feel like we've just given a loaded weapon to a four-year-old? Because it taps into our primal state in a way we don't even understand. These engineers, the, the divisionists who created this stuff. Now, whether it was witting or unwitting, I'm not going to get into that here. But it was certainly with the knowledge that what they were tapping into was a primal reality, our primal self, an ancient part of ourselves that this technology tapped into. And the reality is now I'm going, to st- I'm going to pivot from here, and I'm going to start to talk about the dangers of entanglement. I'm going to start to make this about you. I'm going to start to make this about your family and your kids. Right, Because I don't believe that what happened to me here is unique. I don't believe that my entanglement is unique. 
I don't believe that my over-reliance on a represented digital reality is unique. I don't believe that my phone staring at me with a light glow in the darkness as I walk past it to piss is unique. In fact, I believe every single person, for the most part, listening to this podcast has probably already located themselves somewhere in this narrative, somewhere in this entanglement. As these digital reptiles slither around us, you're there. Is a loss of your agency. Somewhere in you, you know that there is a deeper part of you that earns or that, that, that yearns to be reclaimed. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about reclamation. I want to talk about the journey back to ourselves. But I can't do that unless I talk at some degree about the dangers of entanglement. And I'm going to do the best I can. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a soldier, a negotiator, a leader, a storyteller who, who dives deep into this stuff. But I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not a psychologist. But I will do the best I can, as I've always done, to synthesize for you what I'm learning along this journey. Because if we can't share these things with each other in this forum, then this podcast isn't worth a shit anyway. But, you know, what, what I will tell you is that, that, that where we need to start in the dangers of entanglement, I've always wondered what in the world um, is happening. Why is it that I'm so um, connected to this device? Why can't I put it down? You know, why am I talking to my wife one moment and then I hear her say, are you even listening to me? And I realize somehow I've gotten back on my phone. Yeah. What is it that's happening there? There is are several people that have done great work on this. I, again, if you haven't read, if you haven't watched Social Dilemma, watch it. If you haven't read Why the Last Ten Years in America Have Been Uniquely Stupid in the Atlantic, I read. I recommend you read it. We'll put the link there for that as well. Um, if you if you haven't read Ian McGilchrist, you need to read him. And and let me tell you something, boys and girls, get ready if you're going to read this guy. He is a neuroscientist. He's a he's a he's an organizational psychologist. I think he may be a psychiatrist. Um, he's a philosopher. The dude is legit. And he's written a book called The Master and His Emissary, which is the the uh, the subtitle I believe is the 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 divided brain and the making of the Western world. And then these two massive volumes called The Matter with Things that I'm making my way through now. And it's literally taking me a year to read them. But the, the, here's the thing. Get ready, because this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna try to break it down and synthesize it as readily as I can to serve you in the context of a few minutes so that we can get to reclamation. And we'll go deeper on this. But what you're going to hear me talk about for the, for the foreseeable future is if this podcast is all about helping you reclaim your agency in the community, business, family, nation that you live in by by bridging with other people and, and creating social capital and, and basically leading when nobody else is coming, right, then we have to understand our operational environment. That's the first special ops imperative is we have to understand our arena. McGilchrist breaks it down. I've always wondered, like, what is it about this, this obsession, this entanglement that, that's happening? And McGilchrist offers an explanation. He, he says that humans, you know, we are primal creatures and we, um, we have a divided brain, a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere. Now, it's not, in his words, it's not the left brain, right brain stuff that you hear a lot of, that even Daniel Pink talks about in a whole new mind where you know left brain is all about um 
you know, mechanistic type, uh, you know, numbers and algorithms, and the right uh, hemisphere is more about storytelling and emotion and empathy. There's some of that. Now, that, there's, there's a truth to that, but there's, you've got to back it up a step, and what we have to understand is that all mammals have a divided brain, but it's also an asymmetric brain. One side of the brain's hemisphere is bigger than the other. The right hemisphere is bigger than the left hemisphere. And the way that McGilchrist has explained it, boy, does he take a lot of different angles to do it and a lot of research, but what he, the best one I've seen for our purposes is the metaphor of a bird in the park. Imagine that there's a bird in a park where you're sitting, and you're reading the paper and you notice this bird and this bird is pecking sunflower seeds right the bird is pecking sunflower seeds now What's going on inside that bird's noggin is that the left hemisphere is focused on obtaining, grabbing, and digesting that sunflower seed. It is acquisition. It is myopically laser-focused on acquiring, controlling, and manipulating the natural world to obtain something, right? Well, simultaneously, the right hemisphere of the, of the bird's brain is connected to the natural world. At the same time, it has a connection with the world around it. It's keeping an eye on the cat that's lurking over in the bushes. It's keeping an eye uh, almost subconsciously on the hawk that's circling in the trees above it. And even on you as you sit a few feet away reading the paper. The bird has a simultaneous thing going on in the divided brain where the right hemisphere has a relationship with the natural world, the broader world, and the left hemisphere within that context is focused on grabbing the seed. It allows the bird to get without getting got. Yeah? In other words, by having a relationship with the broader natural world, threats and things that might come at the bird are present and embodied and felt while the actual breaking down and acquisition of something is happening at the same time. That is the divided brain. And for that reason, the right hemisphere of the brain is the master. It must have this relationship with the natural world. Otherwise, you know, you get got. And then the left hemisphere is the emissary. It is the servant. It is necessary, but it it does what it does under the context of the right hemisphere's broader connection with the world. Yeah? Well, what McGilchrist says is that's true for all mammals, including humans. Right? All humans, we have the same thing. Our left hemisphere is focused on uh, the mechanical, on grabbing, on language, on algorithms, on, de- on deconstructing things. Whereas the right hemisphere, that's the relationship with the natural world. That's storytelling. That's empathy. Um, that is a metaphor, music. Um, those kinds of things. And they work together. They're not separate. You, know, you don't have a person that's a left brain versus a right brain. They, they work together. But what McGilchrist asserts is that in the last 100 years, something insidious has happened. In the last 100 years, as man has socially evolved into an industrial and mechanized world, humans have changed in their brain behavior. Right, And what he says is because humans have this, more so than any other mammal, this imagination, this ability to imitate. We imitate things. He talks about how in societies where tracking and hunting was very, very common, that humans would even embody, you know, they would wear the skins and the pelts of the animals they were stalking, and they would get inside their brain. 
um, you know, they would this this um, this presence of mind to get inside the brain and to think what the animal was thinking, so that they could target them and track them. So we we have this uh, we have this ability, right, to 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 connect through imagination and imitation, and we do this with our surroundings. We've done it for thousands of years. But as we entered in the last hundred years into the Industrial Revolution and machines started to dominate our arena, right, machines, whether they were cars, automobiles, computers, man started to – and by man, I mean human here. Don't get pissed at me. Um, humans started to imitate machines. Um, and, and if you think about it, if you think about our own lifespan – how many times do we compare ourselves to machines, right? We, we compare the brain to a supercomputer. Like we're constantly, you know, high performance. We're constantly compare, comparing the, the body, the mind, to a machine. And, and what McGilchrist asserts is that there's been such a, a, a predominance of machines, and certainly most recently with the entanglement of social media, where we are down in this in, in these in these screens all the time that we we have started to imitate machines to the point that the left hemisphere, which is the hemisphere of controlling, having the more machine like hemisphere, has started to usurp or overthrow the right hemisphere. It has started to assert its dominance in not its connection to the natural world, but in a representation of the world it creates in the digital realm, right? In other words, if you think about it and think, just allow yourself to think about the world we're in right now, how much connection do we have with the natural world versus the represented world through the screen where there's actually a, a removal of ourselves from the natural world? It's a represented reality. And the left hemisphere is driving that. And according to McGilchrist, the left, he's researched uh, uh, left brain, left hemisphere brain diseases like schizophrenia, schizophrenia, um, uh, right hemisphere strokes. And, and, and what he's found is that those tendencies where the left hemisphere it, it is focused on obtaining, grabbing, manipulating, controlling. Um, it, it tends to believe the absurd. It has a, an affinity for bureaucracy, sounding familiar, right? Where, and, 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 and things that it can control. And it makes up things to fill the gaps that it doesn't understand in the natural world. It, it, it despises storytelling. It has no use for empathy. The primary emotion in the left hemisphere is fear and anger. And, and because it doesn't have an understanding of the natural world, it sees the natural world as threatening and overbearing, and so it creates a represented reality. The right hemisphere... The hemisphere that has that broader connection with the natural world, with it grounds our experience in our body, in our soul, in its art and music and storytelling. How much do you see of that today? Right? How much do you see of that? You see it, 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 has, been, it has been completely sidelined as the left hemisphere has, has asserted itself. And we now live in a represented domain versus this domain that is presenced in front of us with the natural world. Now... Let's go back to the entanglement of, 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 of social media that started like 2010, 2009. 
where there was already this 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 uh, this this underway movement of the left hemisphere starting to assert its dominance towards a more mechanistic, transactional, algorithmic world of control and manipulation and a disdain for the things on the right hemisphere, storytelling, empathy. And now all of a sudden you, 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 you present it into or you integrate it, you entangle it in this world of social media, right, where now you are able to literally live in this world. Right, you you interact in this world, and and it's all it's not about connection anymore. It's about performance. It's about how you perform. It's about it's this weird, wicked combination of primal status behavior, how you are seen within your tribe. But it's not around connection or honor. It's it's around this represented reality, right? And 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 like buttons and share buttons and 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 how much of a performance you can give so that you are held in high regard and and the more followers you have somehow the more relevant you are now granted look i i work in the public influence space myself and this is something that we're going to have to make sense of but what i'm trying to get at here is that there is a deep level of entanglement that's happening that runs very very deep within us and I think we're going to have to dig into this. We're going to have to get a better understanding of what McGilchrist and these other researchers are saying because they are operating primarily in the academic realm. And it's you and me that are out there leading in the day-to-day, right? And, and I think we've got to figure this out. We've got to figure out what's going on with the left hemisphere, right hemisphere. Now, I'll, I'll show the football a little bit. What McGilchrist says is that if we're – okay, let's go back to the bird in the park, I need a sip of coffee before I break this shit down. How am I doing, babe? Okay. Let's go back to the bird in the park, feeding the bird seed. And the left hemisphere is allowing it to acquire, control, manipulate the environment myopically for the bird seed, while the right hemisphere is keeping an eye on the natural world, connected to the natural world, an eye on the cat, an eye on the hawk. What happens... If the left hemisphere takes over in that moment and says, you know what, fuck everything else, I just want the bird seed. What's going to happen, babe? The cat and the hawk are going to have their day. The cat and the hawk are going to have their day. If the left hemisphere and if the bird just focuses on that represented reality of the seed in front of it and it loses its focus on the natural world, The ability to get without getting got is no longer there. The divided brain is not working in the way it was intended. There is a hemispheric imbalance in this time of modernity. And what McGilchrist and many other researchers are asserting is that same is true for us. We are not not impervious to the realities of the natural world. If we walk around with our heads in a phone while we walk across a busy intersection in Manhattan, what's going to happen? You're going to get got, right? If we keep our heads in our phones while we are rioting and beating the shit out of each other in public, what's going to happen? You're going to get got. If we allow divisionist politicians to foment instability Within the exhausted majority of Americans, what's going to happen? We're going to get got. Our ability to get without getting got is in peril because the right hemisphere has been relegated to obscurity, storytelling, 
art, empathy, embodied experience, connections with the natural world. These are the things actually that McGilchrist and frankly me and others are asserting we need to get back to. It's what this podcast is about. It's what Rooftop Leadership is about. Uh, it's what Last Out, the play, is about. It is about getting back to our embodied selves. It is about grounding our experience in the natural world and decoupling from this entangled, represented digital realm. It is the only way, I believe, that we reclaim not just our own life, but our community, our society, hell, our species. Because what amount of hubris and arrogance is it to think that we are not susceptible to the same thing that bird is susceptible to if the right hemisphere fails to function in the predominant way it was designed to function? What if only the left hemisphere fires? Well, I submit that's what's happening today. That's where I was when I walked into that villa in Jamaica. The left hemisphere was all that was firing, controlling, obtaining, representing trying to manipulate my world in such a way that I controlled everything, rather than having that embodied, grounded experience with the natural world that we're supposed to have as humans. So here's some thoughts on reclamation. I believe that people follow clarity. Donald Miller says this brilliantly in his book, uh, Story Brand, and I think he's right. People follow clarity. The best leaders I ever had in combat were the ones who were clear. I've never felt more clear. Hopefully it's coming through on this podcast. I've never felt more clear. And I believe that in times of churn and chaos, disengagement, distraction, distrust, all of those elements that are created and fomented by the left hemisphere and manifested in the divisionist leadership we have today, that people slip into that trance state even deeper when their leaders aren't clear. But when leaders are clear, it creates a level of psychological safety. You have a sense of yourself, and then the person across from you shakes off that trance and starts to get a sense of themselves. I believe that our minds are severely distracted. Adam Ghazali in his book, The Distracted Mind, says that our brains haven't changed in 250,000 years. We're still ancient brains trying to make sense of a modern world, which is mapped on top of what McGilchrist says. That makes perfect sense, right? The ancient brain has not been able to make sense of the mechanized world. Thereby, the left hemisphere has asserted control because it resonates and imitates it so deeply. But how do we do it? Well, that's something that I just, that's why I said the journey to digital detox in my subtitle. I believe this is a journey for each of us, but I think we have to start thinking about it. And I've got some thoughts on it from my own lived experiences that phase one, I do believe, is a digital detox. I would recommend to anybody listening to this, if you located yourself in any element of this, plan and schedule a digital detox for 96 hours, five days at least, seven days is better. Because I don't believe we can obtain the clarity, presence of mind, and commitment that we're even going to need any more than an alcoholic can commit to 12 steps before they first declare they have a problem. So a digital detox of at least 96 hours, five days is absolutely necessary. It needs to be scheduled. It needs to be assisted by your team. And it needs to be deliberate and really thought out and intentional. Then I believe phase two offers a, a path to reclamation. This is what I'm stepping into right now. And look, you guys, I don't know how this is going to go, but I'll tell you what I'm doing being a recovering alcoholic. I'm taking it a day at a time. My wife, Monty, and I are talking actively about what reclamation looks like. Again, reasserting that definition, which is to reclaim or reassert one's agency in life. 
right? And I think it is long-term. And I think it is a day-to-day thing where we build habits. Some of the things that I'm looking at right now, an editorial calendar where I can broadcast in the blind. Look, I understand the need to build communities online and that kind of thing, and, and I get that, and I'm still trying to figure that out. But I don't think I can do the three times a day posting the three times a day answering emails, because I think the most well-intended efforts of that drive us and pull us into that mechanistic reality where we lose a sense of ourselves and we are consumed in this represented reality. So for me, I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm going to have to find a way to have windows where I respond to people and understand that the bulk of what I offer the world, I believe, and this is only me that I can say this for, is that what I've learned along the way uh, to share any way that I can. Because for me, I tell you what, those mountains are calling me, boys and girls. I can't wait to get my ass in the Appalachian Mountains up in the cabin, chase my wife around the house for the rest of our days. And the only thing that's keeping me here, honestly, is that I still feel like I have some relevant things to share about the miles that I've walked. And when that's done, I'm going to disappear like Bilbo Baggins at his fucking birthday party. That's what I'm going to do. So I, I have to look at, for me, how do I broadcast in the blind? How do I put things out there that are of service to others that people can consume? But I'm not in there, you know, consuming myself all the time. And everybody has to find what works for themselves. If everybody broadcasted on the blind, in the blind, then I guess these platforms would not be as useful. But would that be so bad? Wouldn't that just relegate us to more interaction and a personal engagement? Right. I think also having windows, I'm going to have to have windows of when I get online and when I don't. We tried this for the first time this morning. Um, I got online after being off for seven days. Took a little longer than an hour, but not much. I was pretty much done with my emails and texts in an hour, and so I'm going to do that. Stephen Pressfield does that. Some other um, really high-performing folks do that. Um, and that's something that's going to be part of it as well. And I'm still figuring out other things as well, but I'm going to lean on my team a lot to operate in the digital domain. And you know what? I'm going to operate in the interpersonal domain. And here's why. And I'm going to end on this. One of the warnings that the the two guys of the social dilemma put out there was that if we think this first round with AI was rough with social media, which we lost, by the way, wait till artificial intelligence is fully deployed. Right. Wait until that. And people are already using it right now. And these guys are terrified because they have been approached by other leaders saying there are world leaders out there right now, bad actors like China and Russia, that are going to use AI to basically dispel all aspects of truth. You're not going to know who you're talking to. You're not going to know if a video is a deep fake. You're not going to know if a text is real. You're not going to know if the voice of your child kidnapped is actually your child. Now, those are extreme, but did you know those exist right now? Those capabilities exist right now in the artificial intelligence world. What are bad actors going to do with that? Well, in response to that, a range of leaders around the the, the world are in a race, an arms race, to deploy AI first, to use it to their own advantage. But look, look around you in this churn that we live in today, where the levels of distraction, disengagement, and, and disconnection and distrust are so epically high where people are in a trance state already, where trust is two-thirds people don't trust their neighbor. Divisionist politicians and corporate leaders and 24-7 news cycles are literally fomenting instability within an exhausted majority to advance their own goals. What's going to happen when they get their mitts on AI? 
in the next version that's coming out in a year. I think it's three. Right? What's going to happen then? At what I would submit, and I think what a lot of these other folks are putting forward, is that the only thing that we're going to know is real is our interaction with the natural world. Our person-to-person engagement with the human across from us. Everything else is going to be suspect. Trust will be in short supply in the digital represented world. Well, I'm going to take my leave of it now. I'm going to start moving back toward the right hemisphere. If nothing else, for my own sanity, for my own agency, for my own remaining days on this earth, I want to have the right hemisphere in charge, not the left. And granted, I'm going to have to find a way to manage that hemispheric balance with all of the entanglement potential that's out there. But at least I'm aware of it. At least I'm tracking it. At least I know where to go to get more information. Is it a fool's errand? I don't know. But I know that for me, I've always tried to follow my own heart and and reclaim my own agency whenever I lose it, whether it's to alcoholism or tobacco or whatever else to, you know, PTS, I have to do the same here. I'm going to move towards the right hemisphere. I'm going to move towards storytelling, towards art, towards empathy, towards human connection, towards the thing that allow, things that allow me to have a relationship with the natural world, to feel embodied, and to have grounded experiences. That's what I want for the rest of my life. It's what I want for you. And I hope that in whatever way you choose to do that, if you choose to do that, and walk this journey with me. Know that in here we're going to be talking about that. I'm going to try to bring people in here that can help us understand this more. Right now, this left hemisphere, right hemisphere entanglement thing, what bothers me is that it's all reserved in the academic circles and the like senior echelon leader circles. Well, they, they're not leading in the day-to-day. They're not coming. Right? They're, they're, they're admiring the problem and, and well-intended. But it's you, it's me, nobody else is coming that are going to be the practitioners here. And I think we owe it to ourselves to break this thing down and to start to look at ways by which we can lead through this. That we can reclaim our agency and our life. That's the path I'm on. I'm grateful that you're here. And I'm grateful for the chance to walk this path with you if you choose to do so. For the sake of our species and our better angels, I think it's what we have to do. God bless, and I'll see you on the rooftop. 